You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Bees kind of got to be considered something that were meant for the country, essentially, and so you didn't necessarily have a lot of people keeping bees in urban or some suburban places. And that was all to the detriment of everybody's backyard vegetable garden. It, it used to be perfectly normal that if you gardened, you had bees. It was just kind of part and parcel. And when that came apart, it left us with a, a world where you could plant a garden all day long and not necessarily get anything out of it. It's particularly important if we think of that part of AP therapy that is bee venom therapy. Now, every bee stings, causes pain. Every sting, I will now rephrase it, gives the opportunity to have a number of perceptions. And we are studying them, and I'm teaching the patients to figure out where they need to be stung, how many bees they want. And after a while, they say, I think today I want eight. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 132, Bees, airing for the first time on Sunday, March 23rd, 2014. Today on our show, we have Christy Hemingway of Gold Star Honey Bees and Dr. Theo Chaboulier, a psychiatrist and apotherapist. What do the bees have to teach us? Much more than we realize. These insects, which pollinate the plants that feed us, are offering important information about the impact of humans upon the environment. Bees are also used increasingly in healing therapies. Today we speak with Christy Hemingway and Dr. Theo Chaboulier and explore what the bees have to teach us. Thank you for joining us. As a doctor, I can't tell you how often I recommend people... um, Use natural honey, natural, organic, locally produced honey from local honeybees as a means of staving off allergies and um, promoting good health. And I myself use honey pretty much every morning. So I understand the importance of having good bees because without good bees, we wouldn't have good honey. And today we have someone who understands bees even better. This is Christy Hemingway. She is the founder of Gold Star Honeybees, a company that creates a low-tech natural beekeeping system known as the Top Bar Hive, which allows bees to make their own natural beeswax honeycomb. Christy is also the author of The Thinking Beekeeper, a guide to natural beekeeping in top bar hives, and a strong advocate for understanding the interrelatedness of bees, human health, and the health of the planet. Thanks for coming in today, Christy. Thank you for having me. Christy, the first time that I heard of you or of Gold Star Honeybees, you were giving a TEDx talk in Portland, TEDx Dirigo, and you were talking about something that was kind of scary, colony collapse disorder, and how this is related to really the health of all of us. Indeed it is. Um, My favorite 
quote by John Muir addresses that by saying that if you tug on one thing in nature, you're going to find that it's attached to everything else. Nothing will bring that point home to you like being a beekeeper, where you suddenly start to see just how connected everything is. Without bees, no food. Without, uh, or, or with using the pesticides and toxic stuff on the food that we eat, you're affecting the bees. Anything that goes on with the air, or the soil, or the water is all, it's all connected. So what is colony collapse disorder, and why is this something that your average person, say me, should care about? Well, colony collapse disorder, which we refer to as CCD, is the name we gave to the phenomenon that started to happen in late in 2006, where a commercial beekeeper by the name of Dave Hackenberg from Pennsylvania had gone to a bee yard where he had about 400 hives resting in Florida, and they were boomers, just really big, thriving hives, and two to three weeks later, he went back to visit that same bee yard and found that only 36 of those colonies were still alive. Now, okay, so that sounds like a sad, lots of bees died story, but in fact, it's even stranger than that because colony collapse disorder leaves you with a hive that is not full of dead bees. It's simply empty. And that's extreme in another way because if you know a little bit about bees, you know that they sting, and they sting for two very important reasons, to defend brood, which is a fancy word for baby bees, and to defend their food stores, which is their honey. And so for them to fly off and disappear and leave behind in these colony collapse disorder-affected hives, brood and food is really strange. It's also very difficult to study something when you don't have the dead bodies. And it's not like you're going back to these hives and finding the dead bodies. The bees have disappeared. And that's just you know, weird on a really deep level, really strange phenomenon. So they've been looking ever since 2006 for a one-to-one -one cause and effect relationship there and began to learn that that's just not how nature works. Everything is connected, and so there's more to look at than just is there a, a bug or a, a pest or a disease that's causing this? Uh, because my best, my favorite phrase was uh, one of the researchers that said that that was a pretty naive way for them to look at it. It's, it's definitely connected to uh, a lot of other things going on in the environment, and that's where they've started to sort of broaden their view, you might say. Bees are important. Um in no small part because they are pollinators and because they make it possible for lots of other crops to grow, thrive. Um, I'm not sure we all realize that. <laughs> if you want to put it in a really graphic way, and sometimes a little too much information sends the point home, bees are how plants have sex. They can't get up and walk around and go and meet and greet each other, so the bees do that for them. Now we call it pollination, um, but it's how Plants like zucchini, for instance, peas, green beans, the things that grow in your garden, flowers, uh, trees, herbs, all of those things, it's how they reproduce. Pollen has to be moved from one flower of that species to another. And so that's what happens when a bee gets on there and bumps up against the pollen and then gets on another plant of the same type and bumps up against the organs, if you will, of that plant. That's how we get more plants. And that's why we joke about 
you know, how many times have you had to lock your car to keep your neighbor from leaving the bag of zucchini on your front seat? Because, you know, it's, it's how we make more zucchini, if you will. So that's the biggest reason that it, that it matters is, I mean, honey is, is good and great. And as you mentioned, it's good medicine, good allergy medicine and stuff. But if we didn't have something pollinating the plants, we wouldn't be getting the fruits and the vegetables. And pretty soon that would turn into a food shortage and, you know, that way lies madness. Why did you become interested in bees? What was the path? Well, I actually came into beekeeping through the alpaca business. And uh, before I owned Gold Star Honeybees, I ran Gold Star Alpacas, and I was a herd sitter. So I wanted to be able to offer more services than just herd sitting. So I went to a farm out in Walterboro and learned how to shear. And after I had wrestled with this farmer about a half a dozen alpacas into some fairly bad haircuts. He reached over into a ledge in his barn and picked up a jar and handed it to me and said, here, thanks for your help. And I said, you're more than welcome. What is this? And the jar was full of honey that he had harvested straight out of his own hives and just strained it and put it in the jar. But it was so nearly unrecognizable from what you're used to seeing in the grocery store, which is so very, very clear and runny and, you know, fairly processed honey. And this was just literally straight out of the hive, no more straining than it takes to get the wax out and maybe the occasional spare bee part. So uh, I was pretty enthused at that point and wanted to know more. And since uh, he was also uh, tied up with the Knox Lincoln County beekeepers, he got me started into bee school. And the next thing you know, I was in conventional hives, the square box hives that people are mostly familiar with, but there were a few things about it that didn't really ring true, and the first one was the way the bees made their honeycomb. And uh, I was dying to see what they did before all the inputs that us humans have been giving them in these square boxes, and when I saw just naturally made honeycomb that I pulled out of a colony that was living in a roof line, that you might say that rocked my world. It just changed my whole attitude about it because the bees are doing something very different than what we're asking them to do inside a, a, a commercial hive. So that got me interested in anything that had to do with natural beeswax, and that brought up eventually a couple of months of Googling was what it took at the time because it was not that prevalent. Uh, but that's what brought the idea of top bar hives to my attention, and soon I was running a service where, say you wanted to have bees, but you didn't want to necessarily be a beekeeper. That's what Gold Star Honeybees did. We put a hive on your place. It didn't move. It was not migratory pollination, but it stayed at your place, and I, as the beekeeper, traveled to care for it, sort of like the pool guy. You know, if you have a pool, the pool guy comes and cares for it. And uh, so that's how I started out. That made it apparent to me in, in uh, big letters that you had to have interchangeable parts. All of your equipment parts needed to be interchangeable. And that sort of lit the light bulb that said, that means these should be a kit. And so I went from running a beekeeping service, essentially, to manufacturing the equipment. And of course, I, I wrote a book about how to do it and uh, teach classes and working on making that class available electronically to all and sundry as well. Yes, you're doing a Kickstarter campaign. Kickstarter campaign, yes. Yeah, starts on the 10th, runs for 21 days, which we thought was appropriate because that's about how long it takes to make a, a baby 
honeybee, a worker bee. And um, yeah, we're really excited. There's been a lot of people that have been very supportive of the idea, but not everybody can come to Maine to go to bee school. And I've traveled a lot to teach this class, but I can't get to everybody where they live. So this will make that a whole lot easier and help people feel more confident about being able to keep bees in this natural method. When you think about honeycomb and you think about what bees do to sort of um, build their hives, you've described what we offer them commercially, which is uh, some sort of piece of, um, I guess, is it usually plexiglass or some sort of... Well, it comes in a couple of different forms. What you're talking about is called foundation, Mm -hmm. and it's generally a piece of plastic, sometimes a very thin and flexible piece or sometimes much more rigid, coated with wax. And the interesting thing to me about foundation is that it has hexagons embossed on it as if bees don't understand how to make hexagons, which is a little bit laughable since they're sort of like the original engineers. So... I I really looked at that, and I looked at natural comb when I had pulled it out of a building and said, wait, there's a huge difference here. First being that foundation is all one size. Natural beeswax, they need to make different sizes for different things. Girl bees or workers are born in one size cell. Drones are born in another size cell, much bigger. A drone bee is a bigger bee. And the bees need to be in charge of that. Honeycomb, I've described it as being the heart and the skeleton of the bee colony. And the bees really need to be in charge of where what is put and uh, making it based on what's going on with their system inside the hive. Also, what we're giving them to build on top of is of great concern. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, When we started in the middle 80s uh, with a pest problem called the Varroa mite, we took sort of a zero-tolerance attitude about the varroa mite, and we started to treat hives with some pretty strong chemicals. And, of course, after a couple of years of treating them with strong chemicals, the mites by this time developed a resistance, so we moved on to a second chemical. So a couple more years of treating with that, we again, we had a resistance problem. But in the meantime, beeswax is what they call lipophilic, so it absorbs these chemicals. And now you have not only that first chemical, but essentially a chemical cocktail inside the hive. And then eventually this wax that's absorbed all this persistent pesticide is sent away to be melted down and made into new foundation. And the problem with that is those chemicals don't just magically disappear out of the wax. They're still in there. And when you buy brand new foundation today, the wax is already contaminated. So even in a brand new beehive using foundation, you're starting out with a contaminated situation inside your hive. So how does this impact us as humans? Boy, we would like to have more data on that, wouldn't we? Well, it can't be good, first of all. And it means that uh, the honey that we would like to use for healthful purposes is contaminated to a certain extent with this stuff that's been used to treat for mites. And anything else that a bee goes out and encounters in the field and brings back, which also goes into the wax and honey and everything that's in the hive, so it, it really is a way of contaminating lots of stuff sort of all at once. You bring it back into the hive, and uh, everything that's in the hive has now got what the bees have been foraging on and anything that the, well, for instance, if you look out at the world and you see a green growing thing really of any kind, especially if it flowers, the thing I like to think of purposely is that that's bee food. And so if you leave it alone and clean and pristine as bee food, then you've got a much safer situation than if you get into a situation where you're concerned about uh, other pests destroying a crop. 
because that's where you're taking all that stuff right back in the hive. You can't really control where the bees are flying. You can't say, no, no, don't go over there. That's bad stuff. They don't know, and they get involved with that stuff, and in the hive it goes. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Have you ever sat on a lazy summer day and watched the bees as they buzz from flower to flower gathering pollen? Those little guys are focused by instinct and never waver from their designated tasks. The byproduct of that singular specialized mission is a tremendous amount of beauty. Now just imagine what life would be like if you did the same thing all day, every day, without fail. I'm guessing you'd drive yourself crazy with boredom. The thing is, we all crave change. Same can be said about your finances. We crave change. As a result, we subject ourselves to fear and use it as an excuse to make a change. We subject ourselves to greed and use it as an excuse to again make a change. But the real beauty in understanding and having an evolutionary relationship with your money is that you will let the bees do what bees do and get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. The honey then becomes the fuel you need to do what you do. Please get in touch with us and we'll help you avoid the cravings that take your focus off the important things in your life. I'm here to help. Send a note to Tom at shepherdfinancialmain.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Dream Kitchen Studio by Matthew Brothers. Whether your style is contemporary, traditional, or eclectic, their team of talented designers are available to assist you in designing the kitchen or bath of your dreams. For more information, visit www.dreamkitchenstudio.com. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. So when I'm buying something that labels itself as organic honey, how do I know that it's actually organic? If the bees are flying wherever they want, and maybe they're going over to Farmer Brown's crops and they're all organically um, created, but they're going over to Farmer Joe's crops and Farmer Joe is using pesticides, how do we know this is organic? Chances are good. If you look carefully at the honey that you're buying, you're going to find very, very few labels that say organic on them. They will say pure. They might say raw, they might say natural. There will be all these glowing terms, and of course we think of honey as this perfect food, and it really is an amazing thing. But it's almost impossible to have organic honey unless you've got control over well over 100 square miles. A bee can fly five miles from a beehive, and so if you took 
let's say, for instance, I know the radio audience can't see this, but if this was my beehive and I had a five-mile-long piece of string and I drew a big circle with that string, that's the area that your bees can forage in. So unless that is all certified as organic, then it's not organic honey. Could be that the beekeeper didn't use any kind of chemicals in their hives, but still what they're foraging on is what the honey's made of. And so that's the key. That's what has to be organic. It's uh, not something that we think of right away because, you, I mean, we do have this good feeling about honey. It's a beautiful food and pure and natural and all of those words seem to say, oh, it's, it's good stuff, but it's rarely, if ever, is it actually USDA certified organic because of the forage that the bees are bringing it back from. Christy, your book is called The Thinking Beekeeper, A Guide to Natural Beekeeping in Top Bar Hives. And by the way, for those who are listening, it's been a recommended book by Mother Earth News, which those of us who read magazines know that this is a very good, uh, Mother Earth is a very well-known publication. So congratulations on that stamp of approval. Thanks. I was proud of that. Well, what is a top, tell me, you know, what is the top bar hive um, give people who are beekeepers or non-beekeepers? What does it do for us? <laughs> the most important thing about a top bar hive is that the bees get to make all of their own natural beeswax honeycomb. There's no foundation used, and so that means when you look at a top bar hive, it is a series of bars that sit across a top of a cavity where the bees are nesting, and they draw honeycomb down from each individual top bar, and the difference really between that and the conventional hives with a sheet of foundation inside it is that they're drawing it with cell sizes that suit the purposes that they're going to use it for. When they're beginning a hive, they need to make lots and lots and lots of baby bees. So the comb is called brood comb. It's not necessarily honeycomb right off the bat. And that means you've got to be prepared for the size of the babies that are going to be born. Worker bees are the girl bees in a hive, and there's a bunch of them, and they're a little smaller than the boy bees or the drones. They have to, the bees have to make the cells a different size for those baby bees to be, the eggs to be laid in and the larvae to hatch out of. And so it's all uh, kind of going on based on what the bees know about what they need to be having in the hive, and they start out with building that brood nest. So lots of girl bees, some drone bees, and then eventually they'll change it over to honey. And that can be just about any size. It can be a a cell that's big or round. It can also be a cell that's very deep. So, but really the important part of that is that the bees know a whole lot more about it than we do, and it needs to be under their control. It is really the heart and skeleton of the the bee colony, and they're the only people who are the only bugs that, that have any idea what they need to have next. And honey is usually used for their purposes to actually feed their babies. Right. That's what honeybees eat in the winter. In the, they make honey while the sun shines for those times when there is no sun. Like, we got sun today. But we, <laughs> we have sun today, but we don't have flowers. So that's, that's what they're basically doing, is getting themselves through the winter on their own, their own resources. We're seeing more of an interest in people raising their own chickens, even inside the city limits, and, um, and beekeeping. This has become more and more popular. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the first reason is because bees and chickens are each other's gateway drug. <laughs> but I think there's been a movement sort of to, to get a little better connected to the planet. You know, we, we don't necessarily like the pictures that we've been shown of factory farming. Chickens raised in an environment like that don't 
look healthy or cheerful and you just don't really want to be connected to that or perpetuating it. And so people found that it was fairly easy to lobby your local government and be able to keep chickens. And bees are somehow in that same vein. Obviously, there's a huge difference between chickens and bees, but they're related in that you can do it in your backyard. And it's not uh, as intensive as having a, a cow, say, which requires a lot of space. And so it seems to just go hand in hand. And the other thing that I will say that I've found when I started first uh, marketing Top Bar Hives, and talking about the concept, I would have mothers, always mothers, it seemed, come up to the hive with a child in each hand, and she'd be, Johnny, Susie, look, it's bees. And then she would look at me, and she would say, we just got chickens, and next we're getting bees. Because it's just a way of parents helping to teach their children, look, this is how the world works. This is where food comes from. This is, this is important stuff. You should know this, and especially when you can compare it to video game playing, it's a great deal more earthy, you might say. And this was the way that things used to work. I mean, people would have a farm, they would have some chickens, they'd have a cow, they might have a beehive out back. I mean, this, is, this was a way that people had to sort of create self-sustainability. Agreed. And uh, somewhere, we kind of got disconnected and came off track there. And Agriculture started to blow up into a big industry instead of something that you did in your backyard, and bees kind of got to be considered something that were meant for the country, essentially, and so you didn't necessarily have a lot of people keeping bees in urban or suburban places, and that was all to the detriment of everybody's backyard vegetable garden. You know, it was... uh, It used to be perfectly normal that if you gardened, you had bees. It was just kind of part and parcel. And when that came apart, it left us with a a world where you could plant a garden all day long and not necessarily get anything out of it. Because if there were no bees, there was no pollination, and now we have no zucchini. (laughs) Which, I mean, I could probably live in a world without zucchini, but, you know, I'm, I'm very big on every other vegetable on the planet, so, you know, you need all of that to work. And... Somehow, when that came unplugged or disconnected, we just sort of lost track of it and started to think that maybe chicken really did come in styrofoam trays wrapped in cellophane. It's kind of there's a movement to change that back, and I think that's one of the reasons that parents are interested in chickens and bees. What what would the requirements be for somebody who wanted to keep bees? Say I live in Portland on the West End and I have a little plot of land to go along with my house like how much how much space do you need you know what are some of that requirements and how much work is it Hmm, good questions for people who are getting started for sure you don't necessarily have to have a lot of land yourself because as we talked about earlier bees forage easily five miles from their hive so they're going to be out in the area to the tune of about 100 square miles surrounding your place but you don't have to have that whole Uh, You don't have to own all that acreage, and you don't have to have it all planted with everything that the bees need to eat either. So you need to be in a good place. The less pesticide use and industrial agriculture in your area that there is, the better. Uh, But they just need a place where it's safe for the hive to be, and the traffic of the bees coming in and out of the hive uh, needs to be somewhat secluded. I mean, you don't want the bees coming out of the hive going straight across your sidewalk so that the mailman has to walk through them to get to the mailbox. That's kind of out. Um, but just, you know, a safe enough place where the hive isn't bothered and then enough good forage in your area that they've got the food that they need. 
And how much work does it take to actually maintain these hives? What I like to do is take the whole season and then average it out by the week. And so I think that early on you probably inspect once a week, maybe a little more often than that. Uh, you're certainly out there excited about your bees, so you're looking. And at the beginning, you're new, perhaps, and so you're not as confident and you're not as quick. So an inspection will probably take you 45 minutes to an hour. And then as the season progresses, you're going to find that you get a little faster, a little more confident, it goes a little better, but your colony is now considerably larger as well. So it seems to work out to about an hour in inspection, no matter what. So. If you were to look at that chopped out over your entire growing season from the minute you put a brand new package of bees into a brand new hive to the time you close down in the winter, it's probably a little less than an hour a week. Or like we like to say, less than chickens. <laughs> so, But an hour a week, if that. You don't have to look at them every day. You don't have to do anything with them every day. Just uh, keeping tabs on their health. In a top bar hive, an important thing to be aware of is you have to be sure that they're drawing the wax straight. It has to be on each individual bar because you need to be able to pick up each individual bar to inspect it. And if they happen to glue or, or wax, if you will, stick some bars together by the way they've made the wax, then you need to get in there and correct that situation so that you can inspect each individual bar. So when you say drawing the wax straight, it... That's a hard concept, isn't it? Um, it? It essentially means this. Bees start at the top of the cavity and they cluster. Uh, when they're drawing wax, they're, it's, it's also called festooning or chaining in the case of drawing wax. And they're hanging down from each other, holding hands like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they're just like grabbed onto each other. They secrete tiny little wax globs out of glands that are in their abdomens, and they grab those, chew them up, and they stick them to whatever's above, and then they stick another one to that, and another one to that, and another one to that. So it's all, it's all wax made right out of their little bee bellies, but it's all gravity-based. And the thing that the beekeeper really wants is for each piece of comb to be drawn straight down from a top bar. Now, that's one of the reasons that foundation was put into use, because if you aren't patient with the drawing of the wax, then it means you might be in there having to correct a problem that will slow you down. And as a commercial beekeeper, you may not have the luxury of that much time to let them do that and that and uh, uh, keep it so that it's inspectable. But in a top bar hive, it's pretty important that they be doing that on, on their own. And so it matters that the beekeeper be what we call a wax shepherd. You need to be in there shepherding the, the drawing of the wax so that it's something that you can inspect. And is this much of a financial commitment to decide to own bees? Well, the bees themselves, it depends very much on, on, uh, on what you want to do there. If you were to get bees from me, you'd find yourself, if you picked them up from me at Gold Star Global Headquarters, as we like to call it here in Maine, uh, they're $150 for what's called a three-pound package that comes with a queen. Three pounds of bees is about 10,000 bees. It's enough bees to start a new hive, and the queen that comes with it is all part and parcel, and that's how they get started. And then hive equipment, what I try to do with the products that Gold Star offers is hit several different price points that are tied to your interest and ability as a woodworker, or your amount of available free time, or your amount of available free money. Because if you don't have any time, then the deluxe hive makes sense. It's all in there. It's painted. The roof is painted. The observation window is already installed, and all you have to do is have a screwdriver and a staple gun, take it from the box, and in two hours, 
voila, there it is. But if you like to woodwork and you can, and you've you know got the kind of equipment and that sort of a uh, interest in it, then for fifty dollars, the do-it-yourself kit builds the exact same hive, but you get to do all the woodworking. And then in between, because the top bar itself in a Gold Star Hive is the most important thing about getting straight wax, it's got a great guide on it, but it's milled out of one piece, and not everybody has the equipment that makes that easy. It's not necessarily safe to do it on a table saw, and we like beekeepers to have all ten fingers. Counting to ten is, is a good thing in our world, but uh, the do-it-yourself number two kit that I offer has all the top bars in it and the beekeeper gets to build the stuff that's a little less labor and equipment intensive. Uh, so $2.95 and you've got the important piece and the ability to build the rest of the hive. So really it's a mix. Time, money, woodworking, what do you want to do? What makes you happy? How can people find out about Gold Star Honeybees and the work that you're doing and the instruction that you're offering and the Kickstarter campaign? Well, first stop would be go to www.goldstarhoneybees.com. From there, you can get to just about everything else. There's a YouTube channel also. If you go to YouTube and you simply search for Gold Star Honeybees, there's over 50 how-to videos on how to do this and that in your hive, tips and tricks for getting through winter, how to start up a hive, all of that sort of thing. And, of course, when the Kickstarter uh, launches next Monday, there will be a link to that there, too. So the classes, I have to say that my passion really is talking about bees. I love uh, to teach the classes, but to teach for a weekend in front of, you know, a class size of 25 to 50 people just isn't getting the word out fast enough. And so we're really excited about Kickstarter making it so that anybody that wants to learn how to keep bees in a top bar hive can sit down and do it, get the information. Well, I encourage people who are listening who might have an interest in beekeeping or just an interest in bees um, to go to your website and learn more. I appreciate the work you're doing, um, bringing a more natural way of beekeeping to Maine and to hopefully other parts of the country. <laughs> and I appreciate your coming in today. Um, we've been speaking with Christy Hemingway of Gold Star Honeybees and also author of The Thinking Beekeeper. Well, thank you for having me in. <laughs> As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. Sometimes I get scared. While it's difficult to admit to anyone, much less myself, there are times when what lies before me stops me in my tracks and makes me feel that I can't go on. That's when I know I have to dig deep, take a deep breath, step outside my comfort zone and move ahead. Each time I do that, I grow and learn something new about myself and what it means to not be daunted by fear of the unknown. I talk of this often with my clients by helping them understand that while some decisions can be scary and make you feel uncomfortable, none should frighten you into inaction. That only limits progress, and they should be seen as growth opportunities. A mantra we use at our offices at Booth is power through. So if something is holding you back today, my advice to you is power through. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. 
The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. I met my next guest several years ago and had lunch because we shared a mutual uh, patient that we were treating. So we wanted to learn a little bit about what the other person was, was doing. At the time, I was practicing mainly acupuncture, and that was considered pretty mainstream um, in contrast to what this individual does, which I love. It's very unique and I think very important. Today, we have Dr. Theo Cheboulier, who is a psychiatrist and AP therapist. He's also the former president and vice president of the American Apitherapy Society. He has traveled to five continents to learn and teach about apitherapy. He has four beehives here in Maine. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. I think the first question people are going to ask is, what is apitherapy? Apitherapy is the medicinal use of bee products. And there are two general ways of thinking of apitherapy. One is the traditional way, and that has been going on for maybe 2,000 years or so. And the Western way, which uses mostly derivatives of the products, extracts, different parts of the products. I am of the traditional school. Namely, I use the live products. I don't kill the honey by irradiating it. I don't extract venom. Um, apitoxin, the extract, is very powerful, but I am not int- I'm interested to stay with live products, that is, products made by live entities. And they have very interesting qualities. One is you cannot know exactly the composition of a product. And if you cannot know it, surprise, the germs cannot know it either. And we do not create resistance with our products. Is this something that you came to be interested in earlier in your career? Well... That's a very interesting question, and it took me time to realize what I'm going to tell you. Um, I was looking, I'm a psychiatrist, and I work primarily with families, which means that if I work with one person, that person's family is, so to speak, under the couch during the sessions. And I wanted to have a model for psychotherapy, and the model would be two individuals that are completely separate from one another, have no relationship, have very few points in common, and they meet for a limited time, and they have a relationship in which each one knows very little about the other, and then they separate. And during the time they were together, it was beneficial and novel for both. And for reasons that I did not have any idea of, I chose to have a hive. 
I could know very little about how the bees think. The bees could know very little. It should be beneficial. We start from completely different. We will end up completely different. What I did not realize is as an adolescent in the Swiss Alps, I befriended a beekeeper. I was not interested in bees. I was interested in the old man. And I was his servant, so to speak, in the two months of the summer. I loved working with him. So my love for the man determined my choice, and I didn't realize that several years later. (laughs) So you had a hive. You started working with a man who was a beekeeper, and you started having your own hives. Was it roughly around the same time that you No, went? no. In Switzerland, I had no hives, had no interest in bees. I was interested. He was also a winemaker, so I worked with the... I did what he asked me to do. And it was, didn't matter where I was, what I did, I wanted to be with him. Okay. <clears throat> um, it's many years later in this country that I had the idea of, I want a model for psychotherapy. (laughs) And it was very important for me to realize that I know very little about the person I treat. And I have no business knowing more. So I have defined a way of approaching people in, in therapy, which is very particular to me, where the patient will decide what we talk about the patient will decide of the reality of things. I have a thought about you. Is that thought valid? And the patient says yes or no. A no is generally more instructive than a yes, because I said, tell me what's wrong with my picture. It doesn't apply to you. How did I get the wrong picture? Now, it's particularly important if we think of that part of AP therapy that is bee venom therapy. I don't use the extracts, I use the bees. Now, every bee stings, causes pain. The pain is the least important and least interesting of what happens. Every sting, I will now rephrase it, gives the opportunity to have a number of perceptions. And we are studying them, and I'm teaching the patients to figure out where they need to be stung, how many bees they want. And after a while, they say, I think today I want eight. Now, we never start with eight. We start with one, and you tell me whether you want the second. And where? And I remember that person I was treating, <coughs> she had um, psoriatic uh, arthritis, 30 joints involved. She was a misery. And I was working at her big toe. I had got, given two stings to that toe over 20 minutes. And she said, you know, For the first time in years, I can feel that I have a toe on that foot. And she added something that really touched me. Doctor, this toe, her middle toe, is jealous of the thumb. So I said, ask your toe where the toe wants to be stung. 
And she said, here and here. She showed me with her finger where to sing. That's what we did. She had learned and she guided me. So I know how to travel, but she knows where to go. And that's my basic philosophy in treatment. So compliance has nothing to do with what I do. I don't treat you. You are the world's expert on who you are. I'm in this room, the representative of epitherapy or psychiatry, whichever, and the two experts make a team. The team will treat you. It's fantastic. It, it is fantastic. I, I think that when you and I had a mutual patient and I was doing acupuncture, I really... It's very similar. With acupuncture, There, you put needles in certain places yeah. because there's a certain constellation of symptoms, but ultimately there is feedback from the patient as to whether those are the right places to put the needles, whether they're getting better. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there is some, there's something that happens that's somewhat intangible. We can't really quite understand it. But you keep moving forward despite not completely understanding it. Well, look... I've made with a colleague a study which we called the first five minutes. We took interviews and we looked at what I call the unit of communications. Words, intonation, body gesture. Uh, after a few months of studies, we changed the title. The first two minutes, from five to two. And in one of these... I was able to identify 16 units of communications in 120 seconds. Our average was four or three. That was an extreme, and it took me six months to discover the 16th. It was all on computer, all classified, etc. So, if we have every minute that I'm with someone an average of three units of communication. How many do I pick up in an hour? 5%? It's already very rich. 10%? It's overwhelming. <laughs> the rest is not my business. I was not ready to receive it. Is that why psychotherapy or AP therapy takes time? It takes time, it takes attention, and it takes work. You want to work with me, we're in business. You don't want to work with me, you're very lucky because there's a lot of people you can see who does, do not want you to work. They want you to accept what they offer. I don't. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. When I was in grade school, uh, I was first exposed to sports events and had to participate. I was not very good. Uh, we had baseball out in the field, and I always wanted to play outfield because I would disappear. I'd get stuck way, way out. Nobody wanted me close anyway because I wasn't very good at at baseball, so <laughs> so I would disappear through these tall hedges and go into this magical place, this old Victorian house with lots of colorful tulips, and just walk around the gardens 
and I was just dumbstruck by how beautiful and, and, and peaceful it was. And the lilacs were blooming, and I would smell the lilacs, and all of a sudden I'd hear, Carter, get the ball. So I'd have to dash back through out of this magical place to find the ball in a frenzy and get it back. In high school, I remember going, walking home during these, we used to have these hour breaks where you'd, you'd, have, you'd go and you'd do your homework in a break room. And um, I would go home and work in my greenhouse. And I was just so happy there. And, and then I had to go back to school, of course, and finish out the day. But I think that what we have to realize is that this is the seduction of nature. Nature has a gentle but powerful communication. And I, to this very day, will go my office, and the, and the landscape is right outside my office door, and I would just walk out there when I need to take a little break and listen to the birds and look at my own landscaping and just kind of clear my head a little bit. So nature has a gentle way of calling us and has a powerful way of communicating with us, and land and landscape can do that. I'm Ted Carter. And if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Travis Bullier of Premier Sports, a division of Black Bear Medical. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee? So that's a bit extreme for most of us, but it's a good model for life. Let's keep in mind the more we take care of our bodies, the more able we are to attack life. As any good coach will tell you, you can't attack without a plan. At Black Bear Medical, let us help you make that plan. We'll help you find products that will help increase your performance on a daily basis, help you prevent injury, and help you recover from injury if need be. A gentleman walked in the other day and said he had two bad knees. After asking a few questions about his lifestyle and his goals, I was able to offer him not just temporary solutions from a knee brace, but exercises and other products that will keep his body in better shape and help compensate for his knee issues. It's his game plan, and one that he already feels confident about, which is half the battle. Let Black Bear Medical do the same for you. Let's look at the whole you and help you float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Visit our locations in Portland and Bangor or blackbearmedical.com to see why we keep you active in the game of life with medical equipment, sports health and rehab products, wellness products, and more. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine Seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor, Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. As you're talking about AP therapy and bee venom and the use of, it's essentially it's bee stings that you're talking about. You're actually stinging a person. Absolutely. I mean, this that you're right that. Even just overcoming that fear of the pain, that in itself is work. Well, I can sting you and you will practically not feel it. The techniques, we distinguish regular sting, mini sting, and micro sting. With the micro sting, which I learned from Japan, you take the stinging apparatus from the bee, you take it out of the bee, 
and you sting the person with that in tweezers. If I show you, you prepare the skin, for instance, with uh, hot towels or with um, these glasses, what you call them. Oh, like cupping? Cupping, Cupping exactly. glasses? Cupping. So skin prepared by cupping is ideal because it's very soft. So the patient, the administrator does like that. I have it done on myself. You've, I felt just the very light touch of his hand. I saw him operating on someone else, and I counted 105 applications with one stinging apparatus. I asked him, how does he know it's finished? He gave me his answer. I feel it. Now, I checked the first five and the last five. They all had that little reddish quality which says the skin did receive venom. Now, if you think that a bee has in average 150 micrograms of venom, you divide that one by 105, it's a little more than one microgram by per sting. You can sting an infant. The infant will not be in pain. So, you're afraid of stung? Let's start with that. And then we go to mini, in which I put a bee, and I'm ready to remove this thing as soon as you tell me to remove it. And we count the seconds. And if you're really afraid, I'll put it and remove it. So you decide. You are afraid. Good. Tell me. I will meet the fright. I will never tell you, don't be afraid, don't worry. Because if I tell you, don't worry, it means, shut up, I don't want to hear your worry. No. As someone said, oh, you, Chevrolet, you want your patients to suffer. I said, right on. I want them to bring their pain. Not their reaction to the pain. Not their solution. Solution to the pain is aggression. You hurt me, bang! I will not tell you I'm in pain. I will tell you how bad you are. And when I'm in rage, good news, I don't suffer. And socially speaking, it's a very useful reaction because we are not in front of a wailing wall. We should do our stuff and not stick with our pains. So it's essential to be able to transform but if you are stopped with pain and can't get out of the vicious cycle, then I come in. And that's true for psychiatry, it's true for epitherapy. And the patient will always define. Now, I can say, I suggest to do it this way, that way, that place. And I think we should meet once, with, twice a week. Or, you know, depending on what the situation is, um, I go faster or slower. What if they have an allergic reaction? I've had, in 45 or 50 years of bee sting, I have had, I don't know, one or 200 allergic reactions. I consider that disharmony in the patient's life. Now, I have epinephrine on the table at my right hand. I'm ready. I've never used it. 
Charles Mraz, a beekeeper from Vermont who for some 75 years stung hundreds of people. He is a father of a bee venom therapy in this country. Told me that he had never used epinephrine. I've never used epinephrine. What I do when a patient starts having a reaction, I put him on the couch, not to analyze him, but to be able to sit in front of him and intensely relate to him. And if he doesn't feel well, I ask him, tell me what happens and where it happens. Speak. Continue telling. Speak. I will not let you go until you feel like going. Now, that's an emergency. And interestingly, if I had to stay with a patient, fate has always arranged that I had no other patient knocking at the door. Why you believe in good faith, you be, you're served. I believe in whatever. Well, I hope that when I am 86, and I'm assuming that I'm going to get to 86, who knows, that I continue to be as interested yeah. in things as you are. How do people find out about AP therapy or about the work you're doing, Dr. Chiboulier? Um There's a little bit of... I heard about you, and um, if you look on the on the web, my name, I think, I haven't looked myself, but I've been told there is more about epitherapy than about psychiatry, which is fine by me. Whatever they want to tell, they tell. I appreciate your taking the time to come in and talk to us about um, epitherapy and also about psychiatry and about the things that you've learned over your continuing to lengthen life very thought-provoking. I encourage people to learn more. We've been speaking with Dr. Theo Chaboulier of the American Apotherapy Society, also a psychiatrist based here in Maine out of South Freeport. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for that very pleasant time you allowed me to have with you. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 132, Bees. Our guests have included Christy Hemingway and Dr. Theo Chaboulier. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram under Bountiful1 and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our bee show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine. 
at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Thank you.